But we're a little out of rhythm. I mean, it's we been, are. It's, it's, it's been a hot minute. It's been what? Six, you can't six, say that. Six, well, you can say hot. Why can't I say hot minute? Because it's weird. You're listening to Deeper Magic. Well, you're supposed to lead us into this new episode of the Deeper Magic because it's been a warm second since we've uh, had a chance. That's worse. <laughs> it's been a hot minute. So lead us in. Let's get started. Okay, this is the Deeper Magic Podcast. I'm Anna. This is my father, Peter. Say hi, Peter. Hi, Peter. Yep, there you go. That's the one. Every time. And we have Samuel with us here, our our producer, or one of our producers. Hi. So Sam Um, is with us because we are going to get started by recording one of the buttons. For people that have listened to some of the first episodes of the Deeper Magic, we have a proper... Like even professional, dare we say, soundboard that has buttons. And we want to start introducing different sound effects and, and buttons into this. And uh, we've talked a lot, haven't we, about the idea that this this podcast is for people who are still very much interested in spiritual things, but maybe for reasons understandable, don't want to be a part of an institutional setting so much anymore mm-hmm. and, and want to talk about things. I will say this, in, in the circles in which I run as a, a professor of Christian ministries and in institutions like this, there's a tremendous misunderstanding that often happens when people say, oh, you're some of those cynical people that are telling everybody that the church is lame and dumb and, and should leave the church, right? Right. I mean, I hear that all the time. And I think it, what we need to be careful of always is that for both of us, we've met amazing amounts of people within an institutional version of the church. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of really lovely people there. I still go to church on a somewhat regular basis and I'm part of that kind of environment. I know you don't. <laughs> I, at least I'm part of those kinds of environments. Mm-hmm. But I think what people don't understand, and this is our first button then that we want to do, is when we say the word church, I would imagine that many people think that church is someplace with a sign and a steeple and a website and a staff and all of that. Mm-hmm. And you and I have tried to work through the biblical definition of the church, and this is our first button. So when we say the word church, we want to have a working <laughs> definition of the word church. I love this. The producer is like holding. I know his he's finger. like ready. I'm, so above ready. The I'm like trying right to figure out how to signal him because I know what the start of the definition is like. Yeah, I and know. I'm I know. Like and go. And and I, <laughs> and I just want the drama to just like hang out there. That a was bit. your cue. Oh, that was my. I cue. gave you your cue. I didn't even recognize the cue. Okay, and our definition of the church is go. The church is. Wait. The, Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So you weren't even ready with the <laughs> Samuel. Uh, you so know what? But part of the problem, man, is he's homeschooled, so he's a little I know. slow. It's okay. He's a little slow. He's trying. Yeah, I know. He's trying his best. <laughs> he really is. It's okay. Okay. Are you so, ready now? So we're going to okay, try. So the definition of the church is not a building with a steeple and a sign and a website. Uh, the definition of the church is the people of God. Are you kidding me? There's a second button I have to hit. <laughs> this is amazing. So I'm really glad that we started oh our new God. episode for 2023 in this way. So oh, do we have to start guys. this, this uh, over again? <laughs> one more time. We do one more time. All right, Anna, lead us in, and let's pray for some divine intercession on this one that maybe we'll right. get this right this time. Okay, you're going to lead us in. Producer Samuel, homeschool boy, you are ready to do this? I am ready. Give him the signal. The church is the people of God following Jesus and dwelt by the Spirit to shine the light of the now incoming kingdom into a broken and lost world so that all of God's beautiful imagers might be brought safely home. 
That's it. That's the button. I like the speed the run. The speed that run was is better. better. It's yeah. like one of those disclaimers at the end of advertisements. Oh my those god, my where favorite. they're like, where it's like the people <laughs> in Warning, the field and it's like you. happy and sunshiny, yes. and they're like, this may cause death, diarrhea, <laughs> loss of limbs, loss of teeth, <laughs> <laughs> depression. <laughs> it may cause your house to implode. <laughs> yes. So even though you might be able to breathe easier for the night, the therapeutic <laughs> intervention is going to cause you to be right. Yeah, for all sure. of these, indeed. Okay. So good. All right. Thank you, producer Please Samuel. Tell me that works. Let's let's try it again. Yeah, the church is the church is the people of God following Jesus better. and dwelt that by the Spirit better. to shine the light of the now incoming kingdom into a broken and lost world, so that all of God's beautiful imagers might be brought safely home. Anyway, okay, so we've got our outline for today uh, uh-huh. and the rest of this episode. Now that we've gotten our first button recorded, officially, yeah, and so we'll keep recording some of those buttons. But we we took some time off. From Deeper Magic. We took a chunk of time We off. did. And part of it is Because originally that, it was for the holidays, and then it was that I was out of town for three weeks. Yeah, and we'll get better because our rhythm is going to be back and forth to Scotland. Uh, we'll get better at, at the rhythm of recording some things regularly, even mm-hmm. when we're apart. But you were gone to Scotland for 25 days. I joined you for some of that process. Yeah. Well, and, and also my spring schedule is way less demanding than my fall schedule, so I will have quite a bit more time for stuff like this. Yeah, you do have a great class rhythm right now where you're not mm-hmm. even there uh, every day. So we'll, we'll get back into more of these episodes, we're excited to launch this one, which is going to yeah. be the start of a fairly extended series on the Garden of Eden, on some of how then the Garden of Eden begins to translate throughout this arcing theme Absolutely. in scriptures into the crucifixion and reservation, uh, resurrection, and ultimately then into Jesus's second coming. We did a little bit of this with Rabbi Allen, where he joined us in our last episode that we aired just before the end of 2022. There were some production issues with that particular episode, but it uh, but it still really translated. People responded and said, whoa, yeah. I can't believe what he is teasing out from the scriptures. So our basic rhythm for the next several weeks with Deeper Magic, uh, as we are just talking about spiritual things that, that seem to matter, <laughs> independent yeah. of whether or not we're attending an institutional church, uh, is that we're going to get into the story of scripture? Well, we're going to start some spinoff episodes too with some people that can that that really want to geek out in scripture. So we have Rabbi Allen on the docket for that. We have his son Noah who mm-hmm. teaches as well. I know you just finished his study with Noah. Yeah, last crazy night. That was study crazy last from night. Joshua we should 5. do a like side episode on that yeah, at some sure point because that was nuts. Yeah, and then I think Rebecca Reed will join us as well. So. But we also want to just talk about other things in in life that that seem to matter both to us, but also we try to choose the things that might matter to other people too as we mm-hmm. as we talk about them and and walk this out. So we were in you were in Scotland for twenty five days. I was there for some. I of it. was. Uh, you had some significant things happen, as did I. Well, during that time, one of the most significant ones, arguably, is that so my my best friend of eighteen years right. now lives in Scotland. Um, and I was going there to surprise her for her birthday. And we talked about that because we, we, we preview that a little bit, knowing that the episode wouldn't get released in right. such a way as to compromise the surprise in which you were intentionally deceiving her. Yeah, no. And, th- and that's the thing. And I think that that episode was such a train wreck because I was exhausted and you were so out of it. And then I think it was also like New Year's Day. I was so out of it. I was speaking... You- with with lucidity and clarity was, as I am wont to do. Maybe maybe someday if we ever do like a bloopers thing or something, we'll put clips of that episode in there. But That's neither of us was coherent. That's probably fair. Um but basically my best friend of 18 years, our birthdays are three weeks apart. I knew that I wasn't gonna be able to pretend that I wasn't coming to Scotland at all. 
and also that if I tried and then showed up, she might possibly kill me. Um, so instead, I decided to tell her that I wasn't going to be there until after her birthday, when in reality, I was coming in a whole week before that. Um, so actively lied to my best friend for like two months. And I can't believe that I got away with it. But I got away with it to such an extent that when we tricked her into coming to the airport to pick us up, me and my mom, um, she thought that she had ruined our surprise because she just happened to be at the airport at the same time that we were. Favorite parts. That was how thorough I had been. I gave her fake flights. Like we, I went deep. It, it was, it was a thing. But my favorite part about all of that was that after us talking about whether or not it was like holy or like godly for me to deceive her, even though it was like with the intention of fun or whatever, right? Um, After all of that, I found out when we did our like joint birthday celebration that she had also been lying to me Mm. for a month because... The basis of any healthy friendship. Oh, for sure. This is the first time that either of us have ever lied to each other in our friendship and we both got away with it and we both were like, how did this happen? Um... But she, there's a book that I've been begging her to read for years and years and years. It's one of my favorite books. And she read the whole thing without telling me and, like, annotated the whole thing. And that was her birthday present to me was, like, hi, this is your favorite book. I read it in secret, lied to you about it, and then annotated it. It was And now stunning. you get it. It was and it's really amazing. beautiful it's what so, she gave you. It was yeah. really, really sweet um, and also just hilarious. But – Basically, what we discovered about ourselves is that if the intention is for the other person's enjoyment, we can get away with lying to each other. So, so, so <laughs> that, that was the takeaway. So away. your moral relativity has manifested itself as long as it's altruistic in its intentions. Absolutely. <laughs> Actually, there is a conversation to be had there at some point because oh, yeah. I think I, I think back to even in some of the ethics classes that I teach and the ethics classes that you've taken, it does come up these, these ideas of, is it ever appropriate to mislead? And there's scriptural precedence for that. When, oh, the, totally. when the Israelites show up at the walls of Jericho and Rahab, the prostitute helps deceive the guards so that they can accomplish their goals of taking over Jericho. Uh, that gets us into Nazi Germany and hiding people that mm-hmm. were um, obviously going to be taken to concentration camps, and they hit them and lied to the to the Nazis as they came to take them away. Uh, it's one of those wonderful invitations, I think, into getting into scripture a little bit more carefully and yeah. deeply about when is deceit something that is going to wreak havoc in a relationship, and what are the admonitions against deceit? Why are they there? Mm-hmm. Versus. Uh, the kind of thing uh, like a surprise birthday party could and should be or leaving totally. your lights on at home if you are going to be away for two weeks to at least pretend to the burglars that that you're going to be there. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know. And I think I think the thing with me is that um, in talking about like misleading or whatever, the one the one thing that I feel like a lot of people see as a gray area that I have a really hard time with is the idea of a white lie where you're like saving someone's feelings right. or whatever. And I'm like, Okay, sure, but nine times out of ten, it's not their feelings you're saving. It's your own feelings because you feel uncomfortable having that conversation so, with somebody. And that's when I'm like, mm, it's not for their benefit. It's for your benefit. So what if you have somebody that comes to you mm-hmm. that is a bit sensitive about their weight, for example, mm. and you're out shopping with them, and mm-hmm. maybe they're not the closest of friends to you, because, and so there's not that level of trust built, and they come out of the dressing room with a huge smile on their face and they say, so how does this look? Yeah. And, and you look back at them and you, and you think, 
Well, that that makes you look fat. That looks terrible. <laughs> and you, so, do you? What do you say in that moment to people? Okay, this is gonna sound. This is hard. So, this is a hard one. No, but like, hear me out here. This is gonna sound so ridiculously cheesy. But in this specific kind of circumstance, right. my go-to is always, "How do you feel in it? How do do you like how you look?" Oh, so you do switch you, the question around. You just yeah, you answer the my, question with the well, question. Well, because it's like it's never about it's never about how you appear to others. Yeah. It's always about how you appear to yourself. And so, like, can I swear yet on this podcast? We have ten episodes out. I feel like I can maybe swear a little. Depends bit. on the word. There are it's different... like a little one. Okay. I don't give a rat's ass what other oh, people think about what you look like. Yes. It's it's up to you. And if you like it and you like how you look and you like how you feel in that, then go for it. Then it's a yes. I think that's actually a very fair response because otherwise you're in the position of being the objective judge about whether some yeah. fashion decision uh, is going to wreak havoc in the universe. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, uh, okay. totally. Passed. You passed mm-hmm. the test. <laughs> <laughs> so that was one of your things was just the the beauty of, uh, and I think another maybe piece of this, the beauty of the of the long-term friendship with somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, to have long-term friends in life is not nothing. And I will say this at the age of 52, I am both grateful for the long-term friends that I currently have. Yeah. And I also am looking forward to hopefully cultivating some more relationships that uh, will take me the rest of the way. and mm-hmm. But that requires more than just adult play dates and requires more than occasionally being in each other's lives. Uh, there, there's something deeper than that. And I think my heart longs for that so we can be in the kind of situation that you guys are in where 18 years into oh, it, there's such, you're, you're really different cats in terms of how you approach life and in and a lot of different ways, but you're also very similar in a lot of ways. And, mm-hmm. and yet in all of that similarity and difference, you've been able to hold the tension of a very long-term friendship. Yeah. Man, and the loneliness of today. Can, can people say, here are my two or three people that I know are going to be with me all the way through this journey to the end. And to the extent that we can cultivate those kind of friendships, I think it's critical for our mental, emotional, spiritual well-being for sure. Yeah. And, and she and I have talked about this both seriously and like jokingly. Where something that every once in a while we'll say to each other is we'll be like, well, I hope you know that like we're in this for life because you know too much to live if you're not <laughs> friends with me. <laughs> right. Like you know things about me that nobody else knows. Um, but the level of trust that has built between us actually got to the point where like – and I hmm, – all right. I am not the kind of person who enjoys – drinking a lot of alcohol. I don't really enjoy going out. It very much depends on who I'm with, what the situation is. And we had a great time on your 21st birthday when we you got did. back. So Because we got back from Scotland really the fun. 25th of January, and then the 26th was your 21st yeah. birthday. Yep. Yeah. And it was great. And some random girl at the restaurant bought me a lemon drop shot. She and it did. was fantastic. And it was my goal to get the entire restaurant to sing happy birthday and to you. Did. And I did. I got everybody singing happy uh, And it was and full. Honestly, and honestly, though, if I was going to have any group of strangers sing me happy birthday, it would be a table of like 16 or so very drunk women in their mid-20s. Yeah. My, like that's the only situation where I'd be okay with that. Yeah. My job is pretty easy in fairness mm. because the restaurant oh, really yeah. they it, were it so had on. been rearranged to Absolutely. have an entirely long table. 16 women who are all from the same company mm-hmm. they were a few drinks in and when I turned around to one of them and I said would you be willing to help sing <laughs> my daughter a happy birthday for her 21st <laughs> birthday they were 100% oh, and absolutely then the whole rest of the, the restaurant all joined in so that was yeah. really fun yep but the the level of trust that has built between the two of us because because I really don't enjoy partying like I have nothing against people who do obviously but it's just not for me, I don't enjoy it. It actually tends to really stress me out. 
Um, but on my friend's birthday, which I happened to be there for, um, we decided to go clubbing you with did. her and her you friends. Did, I know. And I just that just makes my heart hurt. I'm being so honest. My when daughter I say, clubbing. There is absolutely nobody else that I would go clubbing with aside from her and her like closest friends. Would you go clubbing with me? Absolutely not. Are you kidding me? I mean, <laughs> I, I don't would even go want to ask to why. watch you go clubbing. There's no chance. I don't even I know how to club. Clubbing. I literally have no idea how to club. It's intense. Okay. Also, it would be so weird and very creepy if a 50-year-old white man went to a club. 50-year-old white man with no moves either. Right, exactly. <laughs> I, cannot, like, I cannot dance even. That would, it would, you wouldn't be allowed in. That's fair. Is the thing. Okay. Um, All right, so anyway, but, you're out clubbing. Yeah, so we went clubbing, and it was so, it actually ended up being so, so much fun, and it was, there was just four of us who went, well, there was a larger group, and then people kind of peeled off, and then there was the four of us who had, like, stayed the longest, and it just, it ended up being so much fun, and they were so great, and and the drinking culture in Scotland is so interesting to me because um, it's so much more relaxed. Where as soon as you say you're done drinking, you're done drinking, it is and really there's nice. no it's other really pressure nice. about yeah. that, which yeah. is so amazing. But it was like, I don't know, it was just a crazy experience. But I can just say, like, I've been clubbing now, and that was super fun. And I, I would say, if I was to do it again, it would be like a once every couple months kind of thing. Like, I don't think I would make that a regular <laughs> occurrence, but it was fun. Well, and I think when you talk about partying, this one thing I've really appreciated is in your growing up, you didn't uh, really ever enter into that realm of the 16 candles version of no. crazy, <laughs> weird frat party kinds of stuff. And I guess they, they were more high school then, but just all of that. I can't think of a single time from my early university years, and there was really only one quarter in which it was relevant. It was when mm -hmm. I went down to play baseball at Mankato State University as part of the baseball team down there. And let's just say that that environment was entirely unhealthy on almost every level. And we yeah. would, there was sort of an, an expectation that to, to make friends, and you know, we were lonely back then too. We weren't just mm -hmm. lonely today and, and trying to find my way forward that I would need to do what the rest of the team did. And that involved partying from Thursday night, typically all the way through Monday night for the Which most part. Which is terrifying. Now it's Mankato State. So the, let's just say the academic rigor was not exactly <laughs> anything that was overwhelming so that we could go ahead it's and no do that. Harvard. But I can't remember a single time coming home from... Well, first of all, they called me low tolerance because I could only stand maybe that one or two beers. That does not So my nickname was LT because after one plastic cup of keg beer, I was liable to fall asleep on the couch. That's hilarious. Yeah, I know. That means I have a higher tolerance for you than you. Yeah, for, <laughs> for you. Yeah. <laughs> I do have a higher yeah, tolerance that's true. for most you of my as friends well, and but I do have beer. a higher tolerance than you. Yeah, and I, but I just remember there was not a single time that I ever came home, even once mm -hmm. from that experience. And even if I felt like I fit in for the night and people laughed, laughed with me and they joked with me and they felt like I fit and I belonged. I never came home from any of those evenings, even once feeling like my heart was full in any meaningful way. Yeah. And I had to learn the journey after that of how to have a, a, a full heart uh, in the midst of the absence of life and in the absence of friends at, at times. I mean, by the time I transferred, I didn't really have any friends left. Mm -hmm. And I had, that was what was so weird is when I had the most amount of friends, I felt the loneliness and when I had no friends almost at all is when I found a different source of peace and shalom inside. So, and maybe a conversation for a different time, but I appreciate yeah. that you've never 
had to do the the party thing. It's, it was a fun, but it was a fun month of January. It was. It was really fun. Yeah. I, I introduced you to some of Harry Styles' music, which was great. <laughs> Stuck we went and saw song. After Sun, which... We did. Oh, that my was gosh. Stunning if movie. you, like... It's it's one of those movies where, where I will say if you don't have the tolerance for it, don't watch it. It is it's a very it's hard. hard movie. It's very sad, but um I think my friend Lily said it well when she said that it's just the most human thing that she's ever seen and it is just this stunningly beautiful little movie about this little girl trying to uh reconcile her memories of her dad from a holiday that she took with him when she was 11 with what she knows about him now as an adult and his struggle with mental health. Um, it's stunningly beautiful. It is one of the few things that I've seen that doesn't romanticize mental health, but it does portray him and her in just incredibly human, beautiful, vulnerable ways. And Paul Mescal, who is the father in the movie. I think he just got an Oscar nomination. He, he got which nominated for that absolutely sure. deserved. But that's like his second thing that he's ever been in. The Little Girl, that was her first thing. Um, it was the director's debut, like brand new thing. And they just absolutely, like, it was stunning. I've cried both times that I've seen it. Yeah, it was really, it, it was definitely hard. And I didn't know where it was going for sure. Mm-hmm. And it was a different vibe for a movie for sure because it's all these snapshots. Yeah. And I don't want to have spoilers about all of it. But it definitely kept me interested. And I think was, I think this is one of the tricks is that it was terribly reflective of how people are experiencing their lives these days. Yeah. So how do we, how do we avoid what is authentically reflecting what's true about people's lives without making that truth then normative for people's lives? Meaning, well, this is sort of the way it is. How, How do we recognize that this is the way it is, but then have some measure of hope or an invitation for something more that, that the current circumstances in which we find ourselves, um, may not always have to be that way. And I don't mean Mm -hmm. that suddenly we'd get wealthy or have a job or have a relationship. I don't mean any of that. I'm just meaning how do, how can we interpret our life circumstances in a way that doesn't then just default to this is how things have to be yeah. as we sort of just, uh, I don't know, work our way through life in some way. So it, there was a lot of questions that that movie raised for me. Yeah. But in fairness, I think, like I said, it was very reflective of what the tone of the day is for most yeah. people's lives or many Absolutely. people's lives. Yeah, no, sure. it, was it was good. Really good movie. After Sun was the movie that, that we enjoyed on that. So that, that had an impact during that time for sure. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing, and we can just touch on this briefly before we move on to some of your takeaways and then some of my takeaways from conversations with with some really good friends of mine while I was there. But the last thing, just really briefly, is that I have gotten you hooked on (laughs) Outer Banks, which is a terrible show, but it's so entertaining. I see Outer Banks as kind of 1980s, has met Goonies. It's like the Goonies on steroids. Well, huge steroids, right? But I did not think it was going to be the show that it is. You're like, Dad, we should really watch Outer Banks. I've seen it like seven times. Lily's seen it probably three more times than I have. Which it's, is ridiculous. And I should stop being skeptical when you invite me to watch shows. Yeah, because, you should be. Because <laughs> I was skeptical about Stranger Things and I got completely hooked on You're all of that. And, for that. and now Outer Banks, we just last night actually finished the season finale of season one. And season three comes out at the end of this right. month. So we are trying to binge it before 
Yes. Season three comes out. So I'm all in. It's uh, it's, it's so it's good. quite the quite the story. I've really enjoyed it uh, for the most part. I, I can't say that I recommend it, but I can say that I totally. Oh, enjoy I it would. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> I recommend it. <laughs> you don't you don't have an important Christian reputation to uphold. No, I don't. You're right. <laughs> all right. So I recommend it. I kind of kind of recommend it too. In mm-hmm. fact, I do. Yep. Yeah, that's been really fun. It's really that's part of what's just really sweet is that you as an adult at 21 mm-hmm. and me as a Adult at adult year adult <laughs> an adult year adult that we can just sit back at ten o'clock at night and and uh, sit down. I'll pour yeah. a little dram of scotch and we can uh, watch some shows. When together. I so get a really text fun. from you at like eleven thirty at night and you're like Outer Banks, I'm like ah, <laughs> I know. There's no going back. <laughs> I know. I'm totally in. That's been fun. Yeah. Well, it was sweet for me to come to Scotland too. I'm on sabbatical for the first time in twenty yeah. years teaching and. It's a little hard for me. It's, yeah, I guess it's about 20 years almost to the day, maybe 19 and a half. I want to say it was fall of 2023, maybe that I started. But boy, that 20 years has gone really fast. And I am not um, spiritually motivated enough to always pursue kingdom life in the way that I would like to and the way the best of my intentions would suggest. And so teaching in the classroom has been a real gift because it has forced me to have to do the work if I'm going to teach about kingdom stuff within the yeah. classroom and not just the work about the content, but I so, I'm so, I, I so resist and repel the hypocrisy in my own life, meaning that I'm somehow publicly representing something other than I actually am. And so this work in, in teaching Bible, theology, mm-hmm. history of the church, Christian ministry stuff, how to be in the church, it's really forced me to take stock regularly of my internal inventory yeah. uh, of my life. And um, am I really growing in these things that I claim matter? And I don't know that I, I just, I genuinely don't know if I would have mm-hmm. to the extent that I did, but I couldn't stand up in front of class and misrepresent something and feel at all good yeah. about it. So I've tried to be honest along the way. I haven't always done that well, but I've tried to be honest along the way. And th- just the absurd stuff that I've had a chance to learn because I get paid to actually go do research. I know. And so that's incredible. That's and, so cool. And I just think back to my first lectures 20 years ago when I was about 12, maybe 12 hours ahead of the students. Mm-hmm. They chucked me at Crown College. They chucked me into an Old Testament history class. Oof. Yeah. And I was basically taking the notes from the textbook and transcribing them into PowerPoint slides and then reading oh, the you PowerPoint. Were that I was professor? like I, reading the PowerPoint slides for the students and saying, You cannot ask me a single question outside of these slides because I I I am showing you. I don't know what's worse. Know. The professor who assigns a textbook that you never have to use, yeah, or the professor that you come to the lecture and they're just saying all the things that are in the textbook because yeah. you're like, Why am I here then? Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> that was my life. We had we had fun doing it. And, yeah. uh, but that was definitely my life. But I think 20 years then on from that, and I probably to the to the detriment of the classroom in terms of the ADD approach that it sometimes can be. Now, mm-hmm. when I teach, we sort of just step in the room and I invite questions from the students about the topic of the day. And we go for a hundred minutes at a time and just teach yeah. through the material based on what's happening in the room. And oh my gosh, it's been so fun. The last five or six years yeah. of teaching have been a total blast because I don't, I know we'll get to the content. I don't always know how. And mm-hmm. in that process, students are very, um, they become increasingly open to asking questions that they otherwise might not ask in certain environments. And it's just been really fun to be with them. So yeah. this is my first, I guess it's a nine month break. Which is amazing. It, it does feel amazing. I feel, I feel really fortunate that yeah. you're able to do this. 
and just wondering, praying about what is next. And I, I certainly have had the opportunity over these 20 years to uh, be involved in the broader area of Christendom uh, around the United States and even in some parts of Europe as well, mm -hmm. and, and been a part of radio work and interviewed all of the sort of the supposed luminaries that you would interview in these areas uh, from the Andrew Petersons to the, and he is a luminary. I love that. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, to the, to the Tim Kellers, uh, to some of my sports heroes like Daryl Strawberry. I've just, I've had a chance to do so much of that kind of work. And what I'm finding initially in the sabbatical time is that that work may be important on some level, but it often isn't important in the way that the world values that. The, the mm -hmm. assumption that the more you have a publicly known profile, the more significant your ministry is. Yeah. And I'm starting to sense and feel this invitation of moving much more local and much more closer to home as it were, and just kind of doing what's in front of us here among the, the, relationships and friends that we have on the west side of Minneapolis-St. Paul area, as well as then maybe some things in Scotland and kind of dialing it back, but going deeper in some of those places. So less out there in all of the broader Christendom that can kind of just eat you up and, and spit you out yeah, uh, totally. and into something more. So we'll see what all emerges from all of that. I would imagine I'll go back to teaching in the fall. I think I'd really, well, really miss the classes <laughs> and the the... I, it is sacred to just be with it 18 totally to 22 is. year olds all the time and hear their questions and stories. Yeah. Well, and I was having a conversation with my manager at work the other day because he was like, your dad teaches at a Christian university, right? And I was like, yeah, he's on sabbatical right now and like the whole thing. And he was like, yeah, well, what does he teach? And I was like, well, he teaches Christian social ethics and then evangelism and discipleship and human sexuality yeah. at a Christian university. <laughs> so his job security is incredible. Incredible. Yeah, nobody's standing in line to take that class. No, for sure not. And I should probably just, just on a personal note, give a shout out to a woman named Terry Talley, who mm. she taught the sexuality class before I did at the institution where I teach. Uh, she had to reti uh, retire for some health reasons in 2014. And she carved out amazing space on this topic at that institution. And so I sort of stand on her shoulders yeah. right now. And uh, it's been an incredible journey for me to teach the kind of class where when I started, the only real questions were about uh, what do we do if we've gone too far? Can you live together? How do we get out of pornography? Should I dress nicely? To then all of the questions that are today from the gender blurring to same gender relationships to sex trafficking to just everything yeah. under the sun. And so things have really changed in that field. And it's been really amazing to feel like I have a front row seat to that change and then be pushed really hard by students to say, we need more help. Uh, yeah. Than just sort of live and let live. This is not working for us. And so, is there any kind of guidance that you can you can give? So, yeah, doing the best totally. we can. I hope I hope I go back to that class. The only other quick reflection, and then we can get into some of the other material today. Hey, I is, have stuff too. Well, I know, but I just mean but... in terms of like, you're going to go back to yeah. that conversation we had with Daisy. Fine, go as ahead. well. But just when I was visiting you in Scotland, I took the day to go to the William Wallace yeah. Memorial. Yeah, so he's braveheart. Cool. He's the one who helped bring independence to Scotland in the late 1200s. And I think. What really struck me about being at the Wallace Monument, and I've been there maybe three other times, but it's been with people that we were hosting or it was with you guys when you were really little. Yeah, so yeah. there was a lot to navigate and manage. And this time in going to the Wallace Monument, it's 220 steps to the top. I don't know how tall that is. It's probably 200 feet tall. 
Did you or, count or was there a it's, sign? It's a <laughs> <laughs> yes and yes. One. Yeah, I two, did. I did. Three. Well, we walk so much in Scotland, so you yeah, and I both true. count our steps. From yeah, time to time. I found Just that so, out. Yeah, like, I know. We, we found it last time that you count your steps too. Sometimes uh-huh. when I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got such a long walk, I just count steps, and yeah. and there you go. So the Wallace Monument has three different levels in it, and you go up about sixty steps or so at a time, and then you find yourself in kind of a small circular museum hall. It's a round turret kind of memorial. Mm-hmm. And at each level, they go through some of the story of the independence and the freedom of Scotland. And, and I think two things really struck me about that. One is on the first level, they have actual memorabilia. I guess memorabilia is not the right word, but they have actual materials from his time in those late 1200s, early 1300s, including his sword, including some of the letters that were written, one of his insignias that he did in wax. They had the actual edict that was given by England to to um, call for his execution. And to just see all of that, that was some 900 years old uh, preserved or 800 years old preserved in this space. Yeah. I think among the many things that it did is it took my breath away. Mm. Um, it also made me realize how when people talk about this world as such a fast journey or life is just a blip and it's a vapor or those kinds of things, Mm -hmm. uh, 80, 90, hundred years on earth is a long time. And yet it's an unbelievably short time in the scope of history. And so that was really, that was one impact that I had. The other one is just that not, not in the ways that perhaps he made an impact in the world, but because we are verbs and not nouns and because this world is a verb and not a noun, and we'll cover some of this later when we get into the creation story, things continue to roll out generations and generations and generations. And I think large and small, the impact that we have in our daily life, I don't know that Wallace knew entirely what his daily life, how that would change things for people. But clearly our decisions that we make in the quietness of our own lives, whether it's changing the the diaper of a child and, and doing so in a nice way, not in a frustrated way, which can be so hard when you're doing mm-hmm. that three, four, six, 12, 15 times a day, or to simply be kind to the person serving your coffee, to, to taking an extra effort with somebody to look up from your computer or your phone for a second to actually yeah. engage in conversation. These things, I don't entirely know how they ripple out. But standing in this magnificent memorial, seeing things from 800 years ago, made me say there is a durability to life and what we do that in ways seen and unseen, um, it's not our job to know how it's all going to work out. But it, but I think we do have an invitation about how we go about doing our life. Yeah, and, totally. And that was just really compelling. I think the other thing was then just standing at the top of the tower and they had this great exhibit where it said this is how it looks today as you look down over these fields where some of these battles were fought but this is how it might have looked these 800 years ago Mm -hmm. and that you would flick back and forth between them and all of a sudden time got really fluid yeah and and i know time is just sort of a weird construct that we think oh time is for sure fake yeah well right and and we think we mark it by seconds and hours and minutes and days but that's just our way of trying to to get our head around something that is constantly moving and turning and changing there is Mm -hmm really no present. It's only past and future in which we live. And we'll talk about some of that too, that in the Hebrew worldview, there is no present. You can't live in the present. Right. Uh, it's always just what's unfolding. It's and either completed or ongoing. Exactly. That's exactly right. And so to just be in that space where it felt like it was all blurred together was mm-hmm. just, a, I think that's even part of our invitation as spiritual people 
is that in the realm of the spirit, time functions so differently. And we're meant to stand kind of right at the in-between moments of heaven and earth, to use that language, where there is some sense of time passing, but there's an, there's an eternal reality within the time passing. And I, I don't even know how to say that well, yeah. right? But there is something about our spirits being built for eternity. Everybody's spirit is built for it. Absolutely. And, and how to then process life in the midst of all of that. And so it was just, it was an interesting time to be there. And it, it was just really lovely. And I mean, privilege is a word that is getting overused in a lot of different ways, except it still is real on some levels. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and to have the privilege and to be mindful of that privilege of taking a half a day of my life just on my own and having all the time and space in the world to walk up those steps and, and be in that exhibit. I'm just really grateful for that experience, uh, for sure. Yeah, no, totally. Oh, gosh. Yeah, the idea of, like, our souls being made for eternity is is so, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I don't even really have words around that, which is always such a, like, both weird and funny and frustrating experience for me, especially being, like, a writer and an English major and somebody who loves words, like, finding something that I don't have words for both feels really fitting and is like really frustrating. Right. Um, but yeah, no, there's just something about that that just hits me every single time. Um, but I think the other thing about all of that, and this ties into some of the conversations that I was having with people while I was there, um, which then actually ties into what we want to start talking about in, in the second half of this episode, but just the idea of like having... The word that we were using was naive, and I don't know if that is the word that I want to use. Childlike feels very Christianese, so I'm also kind of steering away from that, but I think that is probably, like, closest to what I'm talking about. I hated how Christianese has co-opted some really, really important ideas. Some perfect phrases. Yeah, I know, I know. It really (laughs) drives me because then we're always trying to find different language to capture something that has somehow been flattened by Christian jargon, so I— Yes, yeah. I know what you mean about being child. It, it is a wonderful invitation to be childlike. Absolutely. And I, I was having a conversation with a family friend of ours while I was in Scotland at one point, and it was such a such a wonderful conversation where we were talking about how, it, I mean, I really, I think I am going to stick with naive because that is the word that I originally went with, um, where I feel like my the way that I go about my faith could be seen as very naive in practice where it's even little things like um, my friend and I were on a bus at one point and we were trying to get to the airport uh, and it was really looking like we weren't going to get there on time for our flight. Because you guys were going to France for like two nights. Yeah, because we yeah. discovered that round trip tickets from Edinburgh to Paris was like 30 bucks. So we were like, yeah, okay. That's and so we went to Paris for three days, me. which was awesome. Yeah, and I just um, go into the denial place. When, when, oh, you, yeah. when you go running off to another country like that, I just for sure. I can't think of my daughter running around in the streets of Paris. Uh, it's and, okay. Okay, so. You'll be you'll be fine. I just go watch another season of Outer Banks. Yeah, moment, there so you go. Just yep. yeah, disappear into the Healthy coping mechanisms for <laughs> sure. Sure. Victory through denial. For sure. um, yeah. So we were on our way out of Paris. We were on the bus back to the airport. Um, and it was really looking like we weren't going to get there on time. And I remember just sitting there and, and again, this sounds so cheesy and I hate it, but like I just was sitting there and I just was praying and it was this weird moment where like the logical part of my brain knew that I was like the road between us and the airport is not going to get any shorter 
We're not going to—the traffic is not going anywhere. We are not going to get there any faster than we are currently getting there. Time is not going to slow down. Like, it it was all of those things. But I just was like, (laughs) okay, the way that I pray is, like, very casual and mostly, like, very free form. So the essence, which is why it doesn't work, right? For sure. <laughs> okay, I'm but sorry. the but the essence. I'm sorry. Just quickly on that, my be- the best definition I've ever heard for prayer came from Dallas Willard. He said, yeah. "It's just talking with God about your day. It doesn't have to be." Oh yeah. yeah anyway, so and that's exactly what you do. Anyway. That's yeah, pretty much what I was doing. So I'm sitting there on this bus trying to get back to the airport, and I'm just sitting there going, "Dude, do something! Like, we gotta we gotta get back to the airport." I know you can do something to get us back to the airport, so do something to get us back to the airport. And and I don't know how we got there on time, but we totally did and actually had a ton of time to spare. Um, but it was just one of those weird things where I was like, I feel like if I said that to a lot of Christians that I know here, they would be like, that's not how God works. And I'm like, why? Why not? Like, if if this is the God that spoke our world into being, why can he not somehow get me from Paris to the airport with time to spare? Like, why is that a weird thing to ask about? And and it's just, it's all those little moments where I'm like, theoretically, I know that nothing is going to change the reality of this situation. But also somehow this worked out, and I don't know how. I just know that I asked for it to work out. Well, it, it calls to mind one of the things that I really bristle against, and that's the idea that when people are demonstrating some level of, I would call it holy naivety, yeah, uh, of, a, of a childlike kind of trust, that there are others that tend to be around. And, and I've fallen into this camp at times in my life to my great detriment. I, I think mm-hmm. I lost about 10 years of my life living from this posture of life that when confronted with that naivety, there's sort of this response of cynicism that says, but, but when you grow up a little bit, you'll know better. You'll yeah. know better how the world works. And I just think that is missing so much. That That is not at all to diminish the really difficult circumstances in which all of us have to walk to various degrees in a world that is broken, whether it's mm-hmm. losing a loved one or losing a job or kids walking away or divorce, marriage, you know, all of these things are real and they're super painful, yeah. but that, but that doesn't then lend itself to the statement. So this is actually how life works. Mm-hmm. It, it is a part of our life experience and it is brutal. And that was even part of what was in the after sun movie that we watched yeah, is totally. this is life. You, you don't just, um, again, you don't deny it. You don't pretend mm-hmm. it's not happening. But to make them then the statement of what life is meant to be, I think there's such a, it, it's a much harder invitation to find of how to retain that childlike wonder and naivety in the midst of, quote, knowing better. And yeah. I don't think that that sense of, of stuff was was restored to me until my early 40s. And that had been after go- going through real heartache and real pain in life, found some different kinds of, I suppose, secrets, the deeper magic, dare we say, Yeah, yeah. Uh, that it is possible to simultaneously be clear-eyed about the pain and sorrow of life while also exhibiting a hopeful optimism 
Uh, and not that life is suddenly going to get better, just that hope, like a hope, uh, a, a yeah. real sense of joy and all of that. I don't entirely know what it meant when Jesus said, for the joy set before him and he endured the cross. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure he was plenty clear-eyed about what the cross was going to represent. And at the same time, he had joy somehow in the midst of all of that. And yeah. those are those are conversations that I think bear some more attention to it. So it's, it is... Don't ever lose the the naivety yeah. because it did, it really cost me a good decade of my life. Where understandably, in the sorrow of life, I kind of went to a different place related to it, and yeah. and I knew my faith had been restored on some level when it was now easy for me to take a sense of wonder and just simply a, a hummingbird flying into our house accidentally one day. Oh yeah, you know, or just even the hummingbird mm-hmm. outside, or now now deer are showing up in our backyard where they shouldn't be because we illegally have a deer feeder <laughs> in our backyard that you gave me for my birthday, which mm-hmm. was lovely. And just just that kind of stuff that can and should exhibit that sense of, of yeah. wonder. And I think that's when I knew I was coming back to health and my faith again. Absolutely. Uh, stuff that I hadn't really ever heard about in the church, but had to discover in a, in a different kind of way. But I also know people within the institutional church that exhibit that too. Yeah. Yeah. And like, it's even down to things that uh, when I've been in some really hard places in my life, there's just <laughs> really, I would say the majority of the time that I pray, it's there's no words. I'm not asking for something specifically. I'm not like articulating an idea or a question or a whatever. <clears throat> Nine times out of 10, it's just me sitting there and like feeling this like wordless cry mm. build up in me. And just kind of letting that fill my body and fill my soul. And I'm just kind of like, I I know in my head what that's about. I don't have the words to articulate it. But, like, he knows. He he built me. He, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> why why would he not? And And then kind of the manifestation of that is sometimes me asking for things that feel really naive to ask for because it's, like, not possible or whatever. But the thing that just gets me is when people are originally when people are like, oh, God can't do that. And I'm like, "Mm, but he can. And then oftentimes the follow up is like, oh, but he wouldn't do that. And I'm like, how do you know? Right. What is like interesting. And and the thing that our family friend said when I was when we were having this conversation about this, because apparently her faith looks very similar to this, was she was like Jesus's first miracle was his mom being like, dude, the the family friends are going to be super embarrassed because we're out of wine. Do something. Right. And he was like, no, mom. And she was like, no, seriously, do something. And he was like, oh, okay, and 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 did the thing. And it was like, why why would my faith look any different than that? Yeah, I think that's – and and by the way, for people that haven't watched the show The Chosen, I think oh, that episode so of The Chosen of The Wedding at Cana is, is really, really <laughs> – well done. And yeah, I just, I, that, when when Julian of Norwich, and I can't remember what century she ministered in the United Kingdom, it was whenever the the horrible plague was going on. So maybe you remember those dates better than me, the Black the, Plague. The, the, uh, the 1300s. Yeah, probably, right? Where the rats yeah, would bite you and you would die kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when everybody else was hunkered down in the villages and dying from the plague, she decided to step out of her, her little hut or, or hovel or whatever they would have lived in back then. Mm-hmm. And she began to walk around the villages and just proclaim, all will be well and all will be well and all manner of things will, will be well. 
And that has stuck with me for a lifetime. Again, not because then people didn't die from the plague because they continue to die from the plague, but somehow she was articulating a hope yeah. in the midst of all of that, that even if God doesn't intercede in the way that we would like God to intercede in terms of getting us to the airport, I've been, I'm not, it's not yet ready to, to talk about, but I've been reading quite a bit about God's healing and yeah, that, that'll be some conversation for a different time because I know that that is certainly one of the key questions that people have is just because God can doesn't mean he mm-hmm. always does. And how do we handle, we handle life in the midst of all of that? And I think yeah. people understandably walk away from their faith because that question doesn't get addressed very well. But I've, I've recently heard some very, very good and helpful teaching on some of that, that I, I among the teaching that I've heard is that God does promise to wipe away all of our tears, yeah. but he doesn't promise that they're going to all get wiped away in this life. And so if, if you are going to have a persistent and realistic hope as we walk away, as we walk through this life, mm-hmm. there's really no way of doing that and assuming that then this life is all there is. If, if I didn't have some measure of a hope that this is not the end of the story, then when I watch a movie like After Sun, yeah. or I know about the kind of circumstances in which every person in this world walks, you know, within the degrees of pain and suffering that, that people have to walk, and, and mine is comparatively so small mm-hmm. when related to people around the world that don't even have food on a daily basis. Yeah. If this is all there is, then the right posture is, well, when you grow up, you will be wiser. Mm-hmm. And so there has to be some other kind of hope that um, that is inside of us somehow to be able to navigate then the present reality. So there's more yeah. that can be said uh, about that as we've talked about, but I, I appreciate you bringing just that up, that there's a trust level within the circumstances of our day. Absolutely. Uh, and God is capable of interceding in those ways. And I don't always know why our agency matters to God, but it mm-hmm. somehow matters to God. Yeah, well, and I think, all right, segue, because um, I have my last little conversation that I had with um, yeah. a really, really dear friend of mine while I was in Scotland, and that will actually probably take us right into what we want to talk about Agreed. with Genesis. Is this when we went for Mexican food with Daisy? Mm-hmm. Yep. So my really dear friend Daisy um, was, I, I just, I love her so much. Um, I was having conversations with her. I had drinks with her one night, and then we had dinner with her the next night. And one of the things that we ended up talking about was that kind of at the core of her faith and then by extension from being friends with her, one thing that has started to become part of the core of my faith is the idea of being beloved. And the thing that we were talking about was that so many people will say the idea of nothing can separate us from the love of God and we are beloved and all of the things, but they don't really believe it. They don't really practice it in day-to-day life. And I think that's where a lot of my really naive faith comes from is <laughs> wow that was so a lot of words that you just got this you just got the mouth. second blessing you just started I did. speaking in I tongues. just started speaking in tongues I was like I'm beloved and God was like yes you are yeah and um, then yeah and, and I could understand it was quite yeah, the Pentecost moment great. for the two so of us so what did yeah. I say because I don't know yeah. well, um, now I'm lying I have no idea what I you had said. like four words that all tried to come out of my mouth at once yeah but basically at the core of my faith and at the core of this kind of naive belief in God is the idea that I'm beloved. Um, and I think that's where that real deep trust comes from. And and part of what I was saying to Daisy was I was like, I, I have grown up Christian. I have been 
in and out of churches my whole life. I've been talking about God my whole life, like the whole thing. But I didn't ever really believe that I was beloved until I was friends with her. And the way that she, like, loved me and took me in and, like, all of the things, didn't expect anything in return from me was what made me believe that I was beloved. Mm-hmm. Um, which I still get emotional about. Um, but I think my biggest takeaway from that conversation that I had with her was if I, okay, we started in two different places. We said, first of all, if the idea is that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then secondly, that the, um, the serpent's greatest weapon is doubt slash deceit, right? Then one, one idea that is brought up a lot, especially in Western Christianity is the idea that your sin can separate you from God or that you can choose to separate yourself from God. Um, And first of all, I think if we believe that, I think if we believe that anything that we can do would separate us from God's love, then we've already missed the first deception. Right. Because then then we are already believing that we're not beloved. Um, But I I was telling my brother Caleb about um, that conversation that I had had with Daisy and he kind of started to say like, but, but we can walk away. We have that option and that choice to walk away. And I was like, yes, we do. But that's different than being separated from God's love. You can walk away. Right. And, And I think the way that I tend to think about that is in the same way that like a toddler is is walking away from their parent and they're like, woohoo, I'm free, as I tended to do when I was a toddler. Yes, you did. Um, and then you turn around and the parent is right there and they're like, hey, I was I was right behind you the whole time. You were never actually like by yourself, but you totally thought you were because you were like ignoring the fact that I was here. And I think it's just this beautiful idea of like with the assumption that we're beloved and with the assumption that Ab- like literally absolutely nothing can take that away from us there it i was going to say it's not a value statement but it it kind of is in a way where it's like nothing that is an inherent value that we have as human beings created as imagers of god we are beloved and that is worked into our being and absolutely nothing and nobody can take that away from us under any circumstances like there there is nothing that negates that but we can choose to believe that that's not true but as soon as we turn around and look for God, he will be right there because he was there the whole time. Yeah, no, I, there, there's a, there's several things, I think, that substantiate what you're talking about biblically. Yeah. And and I, I always know there's that objection. People say, well, God wiped out people in the Old Testament. He was just this hateful, wrathful God. And, and that's understandable objection. It's just based on, again, another conversation for another time mm-hmm. that what's going on in the Old Testament and whether or not you believe these stories are true is yeah. a different thing. But what the Old Testament is actually saying, and this has been part of my sabbatical too, is just to get more into the realm of the Old Testament, the supernatural. Michael Heiser is somebody I've been reading mm, a lot lately. Yeah. He's unfortunately passing away even as we speak. He's in his last couple of weeks of, of cancer and has has done really responsible, reliable research on the unseen realm of the Bible. And when we see God wiping out people groups in the Old Testament, which is always the objection of saying, well, he can't like love everybody. Why does he do this? Yeah. That a couple of things are at play there. One is that those people groups that he's wiping out are always the seed or the descendants of 
some sort of unholy union between the realm of the physical and the realm of the spirit where spiritual beings and physical beings are uh, cooperating together in their sexual union to bring forth a seed that is going to defy God and who God is. And they're also then leading other people astray in the midst of it. Again, whether you believe these stories are true, this is what the Old Testament is saying is going on in these moments. And then it's always still in grief and disappointment that God is doing this. And, And as a parent, there are times when my, my, I mean, my love for you or for Caleb, Samuel, it was never in question, but there were times where I might have to act to intercede to send one of you to your room or something, just because (laughs) simply the harm that you would continue to do to somebody else, if there wasn't a cutting off or away from. And, and so unfortunately I think sometimes parents, and even I was guilty of this, would then get white hot with my anger mm. at times. And, and it would be more of a destructive kind of, of anger in that sense, as opposed to the energy of God is destructive, but it's being motivated through grief and disappointment and wishing that it could be different, but he has to preserve the future and his future and his seed and, and, and the people who are saying yes, all of that sort of stuff. So there's a really weird story oh, going sure. on in the Old Testament, but, but it's not the story of some random bloodthirsty God who decides to just take it out every once in a while, rolling up his cosmic sleeves and, and, and brutally yeah. killing people kind of randomly. It just is simply not the story. The other thing that I think is so helpful about what you're saying is that that story of the prodigal son is so important to me. When the son Mm, walks away and the father is standing there at the horizon looking for his son. And at the moment that the son turns, like you just gave in your example, Mm -hmm. two years old walking away, you turn back around. Mm -hmm. The moment that his son turns and he can see him on the horizon, he, as a Jewish father, ran towards his son. And Jewish fathers, I think we maybe even talked about this at a a previous episode, that they never ran uh, because they're underneath their robes they were true Scotland style. Like in Scotland, if you wear a kilt, you don't wear anything under that kilt. And Mm -hmm. Jewish fathers would never have worn anything under their robes. And so therefore they didn't run because running would risk (laughs) having the robes flap up all over the place and thus reveal uh, way too much Mm -hmm. (laughs) about the situation. And it would have been embarrassing. And so it speaks of the ridiculous love of God that being the God figure in this parable that when the son turns, the father's not saying is standing there with these folded arms and harumph and it's about time. And maybe I'll welcome you back. There's mm-hmm. just this unfettered running that didn't, he didn't care about his own sense of glory, I suppose. Yeah. So, and that's just as soon as there's a hint that maybe his son, even just a hint back, like, God, yeah. like anything, oh, any and he's all. just sprinting. And so that love is never questioned. And, and you speak about being made as the beloved. And maybe this is where we can, we can go into the last part of our podcast today, just mm-hmm. introducing some of the concepts from the story of the garden of Eden Yeah, is that I think some people want to believe that, that they're, they're the beloved. But I think many people who grew up in Western versions of church also maybe are not aware that they've grown up in a certain version of Western theology Mm -hmm. that started with St. Augustine in the 400s, where he was the first person to suggest theologically the idea that human beings are totally depraved, that we actually are little cosmic monsters here on earth and nothing good in us. That was a really new, what's called anthropological, but a really new worldview mm-hmm. of a human being that we're all totally corrupt. His view is what then started the process of infant baptism because people yeah. had to somehow wipe away that stain. And now we wipe away that stain supposedly through some magic 20 second prayer ritual uh, called the sinner's prayer. 
but that's very different than the story of the Garden of Eden. And, mm-hmm. and we see pretty clearly in the story of the Garden of Eden that God was up to something different. So yeah. this is not wishful thinking that we are the no, beloved. This not. is something very different. Yeah. And so I think part of part of what we want to begin talking about here and then continue talking about into the next two or three episodes here is uh, what is actually going on in the creation story? What is happening in the Garden of Eden? What is Genesis 1 through 2 and what all is, is involved there? Um, and because as soon as you understand that and then you can understand the fall and then you can understand the, cruci- the crucifixion and the resurrection, there's a whole lot from Exodus as well that we should pull in maybe down the road because, sure. wow, there's so much in Exodus. And but, again, a lot of our sort of spinoff episodes can dig more deeply into totally. some of this stuff. We're mostly just introducing the concepts now that there is a deeper magic that exists in this yeah. world. But I think we've forgotten so much of it or have been taught just weird stuff. Oh, just really, absolutely. really weird, unbiblical stuff. <laughs> weird, weird things. It is weird things. we've and, um, and myself included. I remember when people would start teaching me from this standpoint, I'm like... Well, holy crap. Where did, where did I miss all yeah. of this? I've been growing this? up with some weird version of always being scared of some angry God who mm-hmm. is looking to just whack the ruler of his moral law across my fingers at any yeah. given moment. Yeah. And I think um, in the study that I did last night, there was somebody who towards the end of it said something that just caught me really off guard where as we were all just sitting there and we were doing what we want to take away from this and the whole thing, one thing that he said was he was like, it just seems like everything is about relationship. And I I was just kind of floored in that moment because I was like, oh, you didn't know that. And I like, I have spent years of my life assuming that 95% of what's happening in the Bible is about relationship with God and about being beloved and about being an imager. And, and so just to hear somebody else like say that like it was a revelation to them, I was like, oh, and and you've been studying like this for a long time, and you had no idea that that's what this was about. Um, but yeah, so anyways, uh, we're really, let's see, how far are we going to get in this? Um, maybe through like verse, uh, three, maybe just through. Three li- verses? Yeah, maybe just through light three. again. And we talked a little bit about light with Rabbi Allen, but we have a few yeah. more comments about that. And then we've got the next two weeks after that to get into some of the other. Into everything Everything else, else of Genesis <laughs> 1 and 2, yeah. Yeah, so um, the first thing that I really want to talk about, which we've already sort of touched on, but just in terms of setting the stage for, for what is the creation story, um, because all of this is foundational to understanding literally everything else. Um, and so much of what we talk about is coming from a place of understanding at least a fraction of what is going on in Genesis. But if you don't have that information already, it a lot of it doesn't make sense or maybe makes sense instinctually, but not intellectually. Well, and, and it's so important to start here because when we read stories later on in the text, like when Jesus appears on the scene and he's arguing with some of the Jewish leaders uh, of that day oh, or yeah. Paul is arguing with some of the other Christian leaders of that day— and back and forth, what we, what is not apparent in the text, but was true about them at that time, is that when they argued about what was true in kingdom life, they all argued with the same ground rules in play. And one of those ground rules was that uh, a ground rule called the more original, the weightier, or meaning mm-hmm. that if your understandings or interpretations of kingdom life were going to be seen as being reliable or credible you had to go backwards as far as you could in the biblical text in order to anchor your argument. So for anybody who could anchor their argument in the creation narrative, 
it was seen as the weightiest version of the argument because what happens in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 really does then set the scene for one continuous story that carries its way through all the way to Revelation. And we've referenced it before, but but to just see the exile from the garden of the tree of with the tree of life at the end of Genesis 3 and then see in Revelation 22 that the way is now opened again yeah. to the tree of life should be a little bit of a ding 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 wait what's going on in this story and <laughs> what's all this in between business about so it starts here starts with in beginning we've yeah. talked a little bit about that already just that even it doesn't even say in the beginning no yeah it's in beginning in this beginning in a beginning in beginning in whatever right and and so part of what we have talked about with that, uh, just between the two of us a little bit, has been that one of the main Christian questions, at least for a while, I don't know more recently if this has been the case, has been about if Genesis is science or myth. And um, (laughs) one thing that I just think is so funny is when we were studying last night, we were studying Joshua 5, and there's a moment, Joshua sees a man with a drawn sword goes up, talks to him. The guy says that he is the commander of the Lord's armies and Joshua, it's when Joshua removes his sandals because he's standing on the holy place, right? That thing. Um, and and part of what we were talking about last night is Joshua, when he first goes up to him, he asks, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come, right? And this is the English standard version that I'm reading from. But Um, part of what I just think is so funny about that is he's like, are you for us or are you against us? And the guy just says no. And, and so much of the Bible is that where it's, it's not people asking the wrong questions. It's people asking the right question at the wrong time. And so Joshua says, "Are, are you for us or are you against us? And, and the man who is the commander of the Lord's armies says, no, wrong, wrong question. This is what you should be asked. Here's the answer to the question you should have asked. Yeah. Um, and so I think if we're asking the question of whether or not Genesis is science or myth, the answer is no, that's because exactly that's right. completely not the point of what's going on here. I'll never forget the first intro to Bible course that I ever taught was yeah. in 2004. And that was going to be the first conversation that we had was the age of the earth. <laughs> and, I, and I don't know what it is, but something about that question, the age of the earth and and how it takes us into this conversation of is science reliable or is the Bible reliable? As if right. that's the question, right? Right. And and I remember going through the different theories. Well, so these were seven literal days. And if you don't believe that there were seven literal days, thus the earth being, I think, I don't know, 10,000 yeah, years old thousand or whatever it is, old. we trace it back through all these crazy genealogies and get to 10,000 days that, or 10,000 years. Uh, if, if, if we don't believe the earth is 10,000 years old, mm-hmm. then you're not a Christian because you're saying <laughs> the Bible isn't true. And so that was, yeah. you know, that was one option, the young earth theory. But then if you wanted to be somebody who thought that, well, science has something to say here, and maybe the earth is a few billion years old, then you had to have like weird gap theories. You had to account for oh, yeah, like right. dinosaurs roamed and like weird, maybe they died in the flood and everybody had all this stuff. But then there was just yeah. like a couple of million years where nothing was yeah, happening totally. on the earth and like the like yeah, yeah I no, forgot I was, about that. That was so weird. It, so you could take the the posture of what was called theistic evolution, that evolution really is a thing, but God was at the center of it. There was another position called like progressive creationism or something. And I just yeah, yeah. And, and I went to my department chair and this story I have shared before. And I was like, dude, what do you do with this story about mm-hmm. Genesis? Like how do we do the science thing? He's like, dude, you're an idiot. 
<laughs> and, and he said... Um, Which is so fun to hear uh, he from was, your boss. He was great. He was just, I mean, again, to have such a, a luminous scholar of the scripture be mm-hmm. so down to earth yeah. and, and kind of mentor me through the process. Uh, the point is, is that the Jews were not at all asking questions about the origin of the earth. They were no. not asking or trying to tell us the story about how the earth was created. So for people who have to feel like they're choosing Mm -hmm. between science and scripture, it's a thousand percent the wrong question. Absolutely. Uh, The the Bible is not attempting to be a scientific document. It's attempting to be a a theological, relational, spiritual document. Mm -hmm. And if you want to have an argument about uh, science and, and the Bible, it's more along the lines of if science ever seeks to attempt to explain all the supernatural yeah. through its scientific method and process, well, now we could probably have a conversation there because right. the scientific method and process is helpful in some ways and really dodgy in other kinds of right. ways. And and so to strip out the supernatural, probably important to have that conversation. To have an origin of the earth conversation right. is not at all what's going on here. We're being taught something different. So whether it's in the beginning or a beginning or beginning is irrelevant to the text when it when it comes to the origin of the earth. So I yeah. think we can stop fighting about whether or not you're a Christian <laughs> if you believe that the earth is 10,000 years old. Right. And I think part of what I love about the in-beginning is that part of what it's setting the stage for is, yes, the idea of, okay, we're talking about the creation of the earth. This is the beginning of that. But part of what it is as well is the idea of when creation is happening, when something new is being brought forth— this is what that process tends to look like. Right. And that's a lot of the point of Genesis, which we'll start to see as we get into verse two. Well, and it's really important because we do then see us to your point, we mm-hmm. see this cycle of creation and new beginnings. And the scripture is filled with all kinds of new beginnings, new creations from the Noah story to even in, in 2 Corinthians 5, it talks about you're a new creation or Jesus is bringing about something new. Our lives are, are one story of beginnings and process. Yeah. And so we can even learn a lot about our own lives in the creation story. I don't want to make the Bible too like individual centric. Uh, no, of course not. But, but we can learn. I mean, certainly this story of creation in a beginning, in the beginning, teaches us a little bit even on our own lives and how this process takes shape. So it really is that process of new beginnings of times. And yeah. that, it really, it takes us into the next concept because how does the, it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah. And then it says what? Um, well, and this is one of those things where Noah will, uh, who is the rabbi who I was right. with yesterday, was he kind of consistently apologizes for the English translation of things, yes, which I right. think is so funny. Um, but verse two says, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. No, that no, <laughs> it's not. Yeah. And it's such a, the there's something about it that seems like such a calm picture, but the idea of the, the formless and void, um, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The formless and void is a phrase that is tohu vavohu. And, and you know quite a bit more about that than I do, but I think my kind of understanding of it has been that it is this chaotic like roiling Mm -hmm. i mean i was just gonna say chaotic roiling chaos but like you know (laughs) department of redundancy department right yeah um that was funny (laughs) department of it's an old saturday night live yeah i know that was back in the day Um, when saturday night live was still funny yeah but it's like (laughs) yeah seriously um but it's this like tumultuous chaos that is is heaving and um 
and then in the darkness, it, it it is darker. It is night. Like it can be translated that way, which is a little weird because like night doesn't exist yet. Um, but it also can mean obscurity and sorrow and death and all of those things. And then uh, in the deep is the deep places or the abyss. And it's the same word that is used later for the waters that come and rise up over the earth mm-hmm. in Noah's Ark. It's mm-hmm. that same deep places. Um and so if you want to talk a little bit about Tohu Vavo. No, I mean, I think you said it well. And, and the waters piece is really interesting too, because when we get into Revelation 22, and I was just um, hearing some things from N.T. Wright last night in a, in a podcast or, or a talk, a lecture he was giving, but he was making the point that when the new heaven and the new earth arrive on the scene in Revelation 22, and, and he was talking about the idea that the gospel is not some weird thing where we try to get a bunch of disembodied souls to some place called heaven, mm-hmm. like how it's so often framed today through some weird magic right. ritual, but that actually the gospel is that that God is in the process of making all things new. There's a new creation and, and, a, and yeah. a seismic event happened when Jesus raised from the dead, starting this whole new people uh, that that as as heaven is coming back to earth mm-hmm. is the nature of the gospel. And we live in, in the ongoing in-between time of heaven coming back into earth and the renewal. And the point of that is he said that you'll notice that when that final consummation happens, there's the language of Revelation where it says, and now there is no sea. And yeah. I'm like, well, dang it. I kind of like the sea. I love. <laughs> kind of do too, you know, man. It's, and, and that's, it's a metaphor, of course. It right. doesn't mean there's not going to be water. But the, but the metaphor of the sea in Revelation 22 that takes us back into Genesis 1 is what you just described. It's this mm-hmm. deep, roiling, darkness, chaotic power yeah. that is... Uh, wreaking havoc throughout creation and there's no purpose and there's no hope. You, you taught it really well. The idea of formless and void is not, as you said, just sort of this emptiness. It is a real roiling it's chaos. It's a force. It's a force is a good word for it. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing is it's a force that has no purpose. There's nothing yeah. good. There's nothing delightful or yeah. um, filled with beauty and wonder that's going to emerge from this. It's just... Uh, the picture that I have, and, and I I am sympathetic to the idea that the world is several billion years old. I don't have any trouble right. with some of these other views, again, independent of what, what the Bible is not teaching about science. But the idea of of volcanoes, you know, they're just yeah, roiling totally. all over the place at the start of of this world. And there's really no, per- there's just lava going everywhere. The sea is roiling. It just, there isn't any meaning or purpose for the future. And, and the only thing that I maybe would say about that personally, that... um. I think a, a whole group of people can live that way. I mm-hmm. think a person can live that way. I know for sure that I've gone through extended purposes of life feeling like tohu va vohu. Yeah. Where absolutely. I have no idea what's coming next. It feels like roiling chaos. There is no purpose. There is no hope. There is mm-hmm. no possibility of anything. It feels dark and there's a force again. <laughs> the golf course often feels like tohu va yeah. vohu to me. Yep. But that I think for many people, life feels terribly tohu va vohu. I'm sure that yeah. you, just in some of your own decision making in life, oh, absolutely. you've been in long seasons of tohu va vohu where it doesn't feel like anything is in front of you that's going to have any meaning or purpose at all. Yeah, well, and I think part of what's really interesting, I have some uh, cross-reference notes here, is like I said already, it's the same word that's used for the waters that cover the earth in in the Noah's Ark story, which I think is so interesting in itself because it's almost like the the wickedness that was covering the world yes. that, that is talked about in that story. It's overcome by the waters of Tohu Vavohu, yeah. which then go back into those deep places. And... The other cross-reference that I have is Exodus 15, 5, 
when they have just crossed the Red Sea and then Moses and the people, it says the song of Moses, right? And Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord saying, and verse five, they sing about the floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. I didn't know that. And that word depths is the same word that is used as abyss or, or deep here, which basically means that Pharaoh and his men, as they were chasing the Israelites to bring them back to Egypt, were taken back into that place of hmm. chaos and void and no purpose and no future and no whatever. And Moses and the Israelites then go ahead and sing a song about it. Amazing. And they're like, yep, they were taken back to what they were bringing into the world. So then one of my favorite things after Tohu Vavohu, which is this, it's not a peaceful scene. It's not a quiet scene. It is this like roiling chaos and darkness and deep places and like the whole thing. Um, you know, what's interesting about that though, quickly too, yeah, I was just yeah. thinking some it. of the other creation stories that are out there that were non-Hebrew mm-hmm. in origin, like the Babylonian creation stories. And I think some other ones as well. They, they have similar kinds of ideas about sort of chaos and they have these creatures that are oh, at war sure. and the universe and the earth is really birthed out of all of this, this chaotic tension and battle. And I just, to go back through some of those early creation stories and see how they understood it versus, again, the questions we always ask, right? I mean, we talked about yeah, totally. that we're so worried about the science of this. I don't think the Hebrews were worried about the science of it. They're, <laughs> they're teaching something different. So yeah, I... I love that tohu vavohu, but then more comes to play in this. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing is that like, and I mean, you know this to an extent already, but like growing up, I was always super into like mythology and Greek and Roman and Norse for a little while, but Norse gets real weird real quick. Um, but Percy Jackson. Wait. Dude, I love Percy Jackson. <laughs> um, is that actual proper mythology? I mean... With certain liberties taken, but it is based in Greek mythology. It, well, and they have all yeah. the mythological characters oh, sure that are so interesting. Yeah, no. And, like, I also, I had a real strong, like, Egyptian mythology phase and, like, the whole thing. Um, but I just, I think it's so interesting, the consistencies that you see all throughout the, all throughout all the different creation stories and even just the myths in general, mm-hmm. like, how things happened. It's so interesting to me that it is pretty consistent all the way through in terms of, like, what is happening or what the themes are or the ideas of, like, spiritual warfare and all of that sort of thing. And so while I'm not going to go around saying, like, yes, this Egyptian myth is true and this thing happened, I I do think there's element of truth in most other mythology because I'm like, how else would you explain the fact that all of these different cultures from all over the world with no connection to each other had stories that echoed the same ideas over and over and over again. For sure. And and so I'm going to ask you in a second, your top three favorite mythological creatures, because uh, I have a couple that Ooh. came to my mind too. But before going into that, I think you're, the point that you're making is important because I remember when I was studying in, in Edinburgh and was in, I don't know if it was in a conversation. I don't know if it was, it was in a class, but they talked about the idea that we now try to explain everything in the world through science as if science is the most trustworthy mechanism by which to understand the world. I know why that happened. And I can do a rant on that at some point, but well, not right now. Great. Like, I'll let you finish your thought. Yeah, well, it was sort of this, this evolu- they described it as not a biologically evolutionary process, but more of a, of a, 
maybe social evolutionary process, or perhaps it was an intellectual evolutionary process. And, and there's, there's this idea that among the most, most primitive and not smartest people of the world, they would tend to try to explain the circumstances around them through some sort of lens of magic or mythology and really believed all of these things within the seen and the unseen realm. But then, of course, we started getting much smarter as a people. Of course. Of course, in, in sort of this intellectual or social evolution. And so the world began to uh, replace magical ways of understanding the world with more of sort of systematic religious ways. And that was the rise of Christianity. It was the rise of Islam. Uh, some Buddhism was in there. Maybe some Hinduism resisted a lot of sort of that systematic framework, but religion really dominated the day for quite some time. And now more recently, as supposedly we've gotten smarter and smarter, science is the right way to understand the world. And it has rightly replaced religion, which rightly replaced mythology. And some of the early sociologists in the 1800s in places like Germany and France and the United States, they would say, well, we're the intellectually enlightened people. So we're going to go travel and see how the primitive people really still understood the world. And now there's too much to the story, but you just, you can oh, hear the sure. bias in all of it. You can hear, oh, yeah. and I go back and think, you know, somebody built those Egyptian pyramids. Those are marvels of technology, like whatever else they oh, are. Sure. We, have, we still to this day uh, don't know how they built those pyramids entirely or a lot of the other wonders of the world back then. And so to assume that the world was sort of half dumber back then mm -hmm. and, and mythology was not a thing and we're much smarter now because we have, you know, test tubes and labs and some sort of supposed scientific method to explain the world. It doesn't mean that science hasn't given us some correctives about the world. Clearly, the Earth is, is not the center of the solar system or the known universe. Right. right. Clearly, it's round despite the flat earthers out there. But I, I think to dispel with the idea that the worldview of the Hebrew people and then, as you said, the Egyptian people and the mythological ways of understanding the world are just somehow completely fabricated and wrong with, you know, used by people who barely could do fire and wheel mm -hmm. or something like that. Uh, it just really speaks to, I think, um, an unfortunate bias that has come from the West. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, okay, I am going to go on my little rant about do this. Do it, please. Um, one of the things, and I, I actually wrote an essay about this for this course, um, that I thought was so interesting in my Christianity and Western culture class that I maybe talked to you about a little bit already um, was that previous to Newton and Kepler and Galileo and then a couple of the other like big names of the scientific revolution. It was like Copernicus was another one, right? Copernicus I can never decide if that is a, is a um, horoscope sign or if that was a dude. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um you're thinking Capricorn. Thank you. That's, that's, the, that's the one. The astrology thank you. Yes. One. Okay. Thank you. Um, but they, pre previous to their discoveries, um, the church had relied really heavily on mysticism and mythology and, and all of that. And there had been a sense of like the sacred spiritual that we can't understand or explain. So it's all just kind of in God's hands. But also the church was societally in power at the time. They were kind of the ones running everything. Um, and so when the scientific revolution happened and they were like, actually, the church is wrong about some things and the church was like, shut up and killed a bunch of people and that didn't work. And they kept finding that the church was still wrong about some things. The church really overcorrected. It's the it's the pendulum swing that of we course. talk about so much. Yep. Um, 
they they overcorrected so drastically that they did away with everything that was spiritual or mythological or inexplicable or whatever and they were like only science science is everything that's true nothing else matters to anything at all but what's so interesting to me is that a lot of the scientists i think galileo in particular were like no we need to keep the mysticism we need to keep the mythology we need to keep the whatever but we shouldn't let the church be the authority on all things and and that was the argument that they had and the church was so desperate to like save face and maintain their power that they overcorrected so drastically and kind of threw everything else out. Fascinating. Which then led to the Enlightenment, which then led to the blah, 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 to the blah, 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 to the blah, 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 to the blah, blah, blah. And now here we are. Yeah. And so science is actually, it's so good. And honestly, I think it's a really sacred practice in a lot of ways. If if you go into it with that mentality, um, clearly we were wrong about so many different things. But... I I really am the person that's like, I think there's stuff in the world that I would call magic in the sense that it's things that I don't think that science can explain. Agreed. Um, yeah. And so really, I think if the idea of the creation story is, is it science or is it mythology? I think it's a very loaded question because then I think what you're actually asking is, can we rely on this or is this made up and fake? Yeah. And I'm like, that's really not the question at all. Um, because even if it's not science, there's still so much that we can learn from it. And there is a, a point to it and a purpose to it and a reason why it's important to study and learn it. Yeah, I think that's so well said. And I, I, I am somebody who does appreciate science. But I mm-hmm. think for those who assume that science should be replacing these other ways of understanding or walking in the world in that pendulum uh, shift that you referenced as if it should be one or the other, it really can be uh, a both and because science, you know, it cracks me up always when science says something like, oh, you know what? We miss the age of the universe by, I don't know, like 3 billion years or something like that. And Mm -hmm. I just think, what other field could somebody be in to have that huge of a miss on on their oh, understanding yeah. of facts and evidence that they wouldn't lose all shreds of credibility at that point? And so science can really point us some, to some things that I think are, are helpful. But if we strip out the mythological and the spiritual and the unseen parts of our faith... Or if we go into it with the mindset that we in ourselves have the power and the capacity to understand everything about the world and right. the universe... Well, now, now we're just Genesis 3. Now we're exactly. just doing, we can become like God ourselves. But it calls to mind, this is just because this is fresh, it calls to mind, I had lunch with a friend of mine that I've known for 20 some odd years, and now he's the dean of a fairly large Christian university. I don't want to mm-hmm. maybe out him any further than this at this Name point. Name names. <laughs> right. But, and we were sitting at some chicken place where uh, it, we were eating, I don't know, wild rice and chicken soup and chicken sandwiches. It was just, it was a, it was a heavy chicken meal, which is great. Are you at Chick-fil-A? <laughs> no, I do know Chick-fil-A. I can't remember the name of Where this place. You? It was a place in uh, in kind of on the outskirts of the outer suburbs of Minneapolis. And I can't remember what it's called, but it's known for its chicken. It's a sit-down restaurant, but not fast food. Not like Chick-fil-A or Popeye's or whatever those other ones the are. The only other place Canes. that I could think of is Nando's. No, that's it's a not. UK it's not thing. a chain. No, this was not a chain. So, okay, the point wasn't the chicken part of Sorry. the story, although it Sorry. was epic. It, <laughs> it was like serving it. Amish chicken. It was really good chicken. I was more concerned about the fact that you might not know what Chick-fil-A is. <laughs> that was more what I was worried about. I was about, such but. a skeptic of Chick-fil-A for the longest time until it actually I, went. And now I'm not, I have to say, I'm not a skeptic anymore. It's I don't go often, 
But that yeah. that chicken sandwich at that dumb little pickle, like literally one pickle changes the equation on it, that chicken it sandwich. It does. Well, and I like I love their waffle fries. I do. I really yeah, do. Really I try not to go because there's a whole lot of like real nasty political things that Chick-fil-A is involved in yes, that, of that we can talk about later. But um so I, I try not to, to go, but like also their waffle fries are so good. So it's like every once in a while. Well, I don't go because the line is always two. They have two oh, yeah. drive-through lines happening sure. at the simultaneously, and they're always twenty cars deep. So I yep. just I don't go for that reason. Not worth it. But anyway, so I'm having lunch with my friend who's a dean at, at a university. Place. That he is as reliable uh, of a person as I know, as as sober-minded, as fair-minded. Mm-hmm. And Anna, he told me a story when we're talking about all this oh, unseen you did realm. Tell me about I this. still don't okay. know what to do with this. Okay, I wasn't so sure this where this is, was this going. is still raw with me. But he told me a story that at one time he and his sister ended up in some kind of spiritual realm battle. Now, already I'm skeptical at this right. point. And and I've seen so much wonkiness where people are claiming spiritual experiences and they start barking like dogs or uh, speaking in tongues can get, uh, I, I think it's a real gift, but it, mm-hmm. it gets abused uh, quite a bit. But he said, sober-minded, dean of a major Christian university, Mm -hmm. he said that coming out of whatever encounter with darkness that he had within the realm of the spirit, he and his sister both came out with physical bite marks on their body. From Which the is spirit. terrifying. I don't know what to do with that. I was, and then I was telling somebody else this story, and what almost inevitably happens when you break open the box on these crazy, kooky, make no sense kinds of stories, people start saying, "Well, I've had experiences too." Oh, so, yeah. the, so the very first person that I told about this story, he looked at me. He actually hit me in my arm, and he said, "That's happened to me." And he mm-hmm. described a scenario where he was like in the middle of some sort of between the world of sleep and awake. He got into some sort of spiritual cosmic kind of struggle, and it was it was still vivid to this day for him. And he fell out of bed and and woke up and had bite marks on him at that point. I, I don't know what to do with it. But That's here, super weird. I don't know what to do with it. Yeah. All I would say is that uh, to strip out the magic that's happening in this world if, mm-hmm. in favor of just sort well, of science and confessions and creeds, I think we just need to be talking about a both and, not an either or. Yeah, and like, and especially in in Edinburgh, which we can talk more about this at at a later date when we have more time for this. But um, Edinburgh is a city where the the veil between worlds is incredibly thin for, sure for a huge amount of reasons. But the number of times that I've been walking around in Edinburgh and I've been like, mm, you are something that is shaped like a person or a cat or a whatever, but you are not what you appear to be. And I just, I like, I can feel it down in my bones and I'm like, yep, no, we are going the other way. I don't know what is going on It's Professor McGonagall is who you met. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I remember walking back to my apartment on Halloween at one point and I had to um, explain to one of my a really good friends who was who was staying with me at the time, I had to explain to her that I was like, we probably shouldn't go do a ghost tour in Edinburgh on midnight or at midnight on Halloween because that's just a yeah. whole layer of things. And so I was like, let's maybe not mess around with that. Um, but I was walking back to my apartment and I walked past a guy who had like the deer skull mask thing because Edinburgh has a lot of like um, I don't know what you would call it, pagan pagan yeah, festivals. Pagan for yeah, sure. I was for thinking sure druid for a minute, but I was like, I mean, technically yes, but that's not the like overarching thing. Um, 
Yeah, so I was walking past and he had like the big deer skull mask and like the robe and like the whole thing. And I just remember all of a sudden being like, that's not a person dressed in pagan clothing. Like that is something else. Right. And I totally like crossed the street and the whole thing. And he just stood on the corner and watched me the whole time that I walked. And I was like, nope, I'm going home. Nothing else is happening tonight. I'm not, we're going to just chill out here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was it's, like a whole thing. They, it for sure is. Uh, and, and maybe one more story and then we'll go back to where we were with uh, the last part of this, this right, section right. in Genesis and with, with one of our ADD trails here. We got totally derailed. We did. But but uh, I was reading Victor and Edith Turner are their names. Again, this is part of when I was back in school and they were sociologists who were part of this movement to go study the quote unquote primitive people. But they went into, they were different. They were different people going into it. They wanted to um, enter into the realm of the people they were studying. There, there's there's a big debate within sociology that if you go study people who are not your people group, mm-hmm. can you actually attain some measure of insider status? Can you see the world the way that they see it? Or can you only yeah. be from the outside and describe what you see the best you can? And they wanted to try to get to sort of insider status. And Edith Tenner did some of this. Now, she went into some sort of ritual healing. I can't remember the exact name of the ritual healing, but a woman in was desperately ill. And she said that in participating in the healing ritual with the witch doctor who came, that the witch doctor did some kind of ceremony. And then she had some sort of uh, hallucinogenic that she was taking that was part of the flowers that they mash up and, and kind of get yeah. you into a different kind of state. and. In that state, she said, even though that was part of what I was doing, it was quite clear to me that when the witch doctor was done doing his work, that he had reached inside the woman and had pulled out an actual physical something Mm -hmm. from the woman that then began to dissipate and disappear at that time and, uh, and seemed to be something of spiritual substance that she couldn't explain or describe. And I just think these stories are so interesting, and yet they're I think they're scary to explore because people immediately think you're absolutely nuts. Uh, and and a lot of people are. The, more often than not, the claims yeah. that people make are, are absolutely bonkers. insane. But yeah. I also have so many trusted people and, and, and you and I both have had experiences that simply can't be put into a test tube and assumed mm-hmm. that um, they can be measured in some way to therefore be reliable where, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. science is a reliable process is to, to take out all variables of anything and try to repeat it a few times and then say, good, but you can't take variability out of life at all. So, so science helps on some levels. It just mm-hmm. shouldn't ever replace religious framework or magic framework, I would say. Yeah. So back, oh, you have to answer the question though, your favorite three mythological creatures and then we can oh, move on. Okay. Uh, hmm. I've always been really interested in the fae, whatever that looks like, whether it's will-o'-the-wisp or fairy or, like, the whole— And I'm not talking, like, Tinkerbell fairy. No, the avatar kinds of things. Those little white wispy things. Avatar. Oh, okay. Uh, Yeah, sure. Um, Actually, yeah. Okay. Mythologically, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Pretty close. Um, I'm thinking, like, the the little blue things and brave, like— Oh, Stuff sure. like that. Yeah. Or, like, if you go into the actual, like, Celtic mythology and the, um, oh, I think it's, like, noble, no, noble-hearted Kate is something different. But there's a, there's some story, 
about the All Hallows' Eve and the Fairy Queen and, like, that sort of thing. It's, like, that where I'm, like, oh, you are of another realm. You're not, like, this cute little pixie. Like, there, there's something going on here for sure. Okay. Um. So the phase one. I just think they're super interesting. They and are. the— just that every culture has some sort of myth they about do. the Fae. They it's do. really, really interesting to me. Um, so that, I just, I'm a sucker for dragons. Me too. I love That's dragons. That's one of mine. That'll be one They're of my three. Mm-hmm. I just, I really, yeah. Um, and, gosh, I don't know. So you keep thinking, and I'll throw in my second one. So I'm with you on dragons. Uh-huh. The Minotaur, for some reason, was... Yeah. Uh, it's Theseus that goes in and takes care of the Minotaur, I think. Probably. I yeah, yeah, so that sounds right. Like I don't, there's something about the Minotaur being in this labyrinth. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. So that was always an interesting one. So that's two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think mine is probably tied for third between like sirens. Because okay. I had a I had a that's scary. thing about that for a long yeah, time. They're scary. Um I just thought they were super interesting. Uh Conceptually. Um, and phoenixes, Okay, I think, have always been really interesting to me. I love the phoenix, um, too. Yeah. I think the only other one that I could think of— I gave you three. You're up to four right now. Too bad. Um, Would—for for a whole host of reasons, including what the actual mythology around this was, and then— some of what it has evolved into in terms of modern symbolism, especially for young women, is um, Medusa. That's and, my. That was my third one. Oh, you really? just took my third one, yeah. So why for you? Well, for different reasons. I, I don't sure. necessarily sympathize with the feminine uh, in the way that you probably are <laughs> on, on Medusa. There's yeah. mine, mine was just the idea that you would turn to stone if she caught your eye. Oh, and yeah. then And then the original Clash of the Titans that came out in the 1980s, I want to mm-hmm. say, it's centered around the story of Perseus being able to lop off her head so right. that he could put it into a bag and then thus turn the crack into stone and save his love or whatever it was. So mm-hmm. there was something about as a as a 13-year-old seeing him lop off Medusa's head and oh, then drag sure. it out of the bag at the end of the movie to turn yep. the cracking into stone and like the neck juice and neck tendons and everything are still sort of coming. Oh, it, was, gross. it was horrible. Whatever That's Hollywood. So yeah, gross. Whatever. But somehow, I mean, she was this inanimate uh, head, right? But as soon as somebody looked at her, even in death, she was able, her eyes were able to light up and turn mm-hmm. to stone. I don't know why that was so intriguing to me, but. Well, and for me, there's a uh, sort of the modern symbolism of it has come from a, maybe a different interpretation of the original myth where. Uh, it, in the original myth, she is pursued by Poseidon uh, very much against her will and can't do anything about that. Yeah. Um, and I think it's Athena who turns her into Medusa. And a lot of the traditional understanding about that was like out of rage or whatever because it like happened in Athena's temple or something. Um, but a lot of the modern interpretation, especially for young women – is that it was out of protection that Athena protected her and was like, this will never happen to you again. Um, and so it's really become like a a symbol for young women in my generation as like, a, no, this is a sign of protection. Sure. So I don't know. I just think that's always been super interesting to me as, as a creature and a character. Well, I think it's actually in light of what we're talking about, it's an important conversation because I think 
even if these stories are not true, the various mm-hmm. Egyptian myths that you were referencing are now these more Greek mytho- mythological characters that we're talking about. I think it wakes up our spirit and our mind and our heart to this broader world mm-hmm. that then actually allows us to approach scripture in a much different way. Because again, I would suggest that what you and I are talking about in the creation story today, and we'll talk about in the next few weeks, and we'll have some guests coming in to talk more about it. Yeah. That the way the Hebrew people understood the world was much closer to Fae and Sirens and Medusa and and Minotaurs and uh, in that whole realm. And so to understand their worldview in light of that, I think takes us into scripture in a much different way and just eliminates the silly, again, conversations about is the earth 10,000 years old or Mm -hmm. 2 billion and is it true or not true because of that? It's not even wondering about those questions uh, and all of that. And it it just takes us into a different kind of realm. So I know we've got two more things we want to cover, right? We want to cover the spirit hovering over the water just at least quickly or brooding over the water and then a bit about the light that comes in and, and we can wrap up this part of the creation story. Yeah, yeah. So to so to go back a little bit, we have uh, in in beginning or in this beginning or in a beginning, there is this roiling, chaotic, darkness, deep places, abyss, whole thing. And in the middle of all of that, there is the spirit of God. Um, mine says hovering over the face of the waters. Again, no. It's um, Ruach Elohim, which is both the, f- the feminine and masculine aspects of God, which is so interesting. In light mm, right here of, in the beginning. In light of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, in light of what's about to happen. Um, but the, the word hovering, it's actually closer to like a brooding. Mm-hmm. And so it is this like kind of nesting, brooding, like protective shaping holding like the the idea is really of a womb mm-hmm. here in the in the dark chaotic roiling waters and then the masculine and feminine of god kind of brooding over or preparing that place for what is literally about to be birthed out of that and that same imagery of the spirit hovering over the waters is used again in Noah's ark when mm-hmm. the world is kind of remade. It really, Noah's Ark is so interesting to study in light of the creation story because it really is kind of a repeat of all of that. Um, But I think it's also used in Jesus's baptism, isn't it? When the sky, when the heavens open up and the spirit descends on Mm -hmm. Jesus. Uh, Yes, exactly right. Yeah. um, Yeah. It's this, it is this picture of a giving birth of something. We're seeing right in the beginning the masculinity that you said, Elohim, and mm-hmm. femininity, Ruach, of the spirit coming together and something that of creation is going to come forth from that. Yeah. And it's it's a, such an important thing to see right up front because the bringing forth of future is going to be one of the critical themes of the biblical text. It's, it's why when women can't bring forth future, mm-hmm. it, it is so painful. Uh, it is the various seeds that are brought forth in the future, some of mm-hmm. which are corrupted and some of which are consistent with what God has been doing. There's just, there's so much that we need to understand in the beginning um, of Ruhak Elohim about ready, as you just, I think, rightly said, brooding mm-hmm. and ready to to give forth. Now, I know next week we're going to talk a little bit about the idea that God is love. And so what God brings forth, mm-hmm. the imagers that are brought forth in the next two weeks, yeah. that we are the beloved because God is love and and the masculinity and femininity of God coming forward right now at the beginning are bringing in creation in love and delight and joy. And so all these crazy, weird, theologically 
backwards, wrong, incorrect ways of understanding <laughs> God as sort of this angry tyrant in the mm-hmm. sky, it gets eliminated biblically right away in, in Genesis 1, where creation is going to be brought forth in yeah. the love that exists within Ruach Elohim. Yeah, and I think part of it as well is that I think oftentimes, and and if this was different for you than it has been for me, let me know. But my kind of understanding of it in the past has always been that like in in the Trinity, you have God the Father and Jesus the Son, and then you have the Spirit, which is the feminine thing, and then just kind of goes over there and does its own thing, and it's like whatever. Um, and so the idea or the mental picture that I've always kind of had of these first couple of verses is just this darkness, this nothing, whatever. And then the feminine part of God is just kind of like chilling, but nothing's really happening. And then the masculine part of God comes in and is like, let there be light. And then there was creation and the spirit of God is like, oh no. And like the whole, right? Like that whole thing. Uh, But I think it's so interesting that the spirit of God is the masculine and the feminine, which means that literally from the very beginning, in, in beginning, the masculine and feminine are preparing and protecting and brooding over this place together. And from that, comes forth new life yes. that that both are involved from the very beginning and that then um in verse three and god said and that word said according to the um bible app that i have the blue letter bible that like picks apart all the hebrew and everything love that love that app um talks about that word said as say, desire, command, intend, call, speak one's heart. Like it's it's all of those things kind of together. Um, and so out of that place of the male and female of God brooding over this chaotic abyss, God speaks his heart and intends light. Yeah. And and it is, and it happens. And it's I love how you, you've talked about that. And again, we're not talking about the Trinity being two dudes and a girl. No. You know, that's not what we're talking <laughs> about here. We are talking about, we see that within God who is, who somehow transcends all of what is masculine and feminine, that all of what is masculine and, and feminine is still somehow within the Godhead. Mm-hmm. And so we're not going to call God a dude or, a, a, you know, a girl. Uh, on either side of it, but we see still, however else we understand masculinity and femininity, that it, it that that God is not a boy, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people have grown up assuming that God is a boy and boys get stuff done or whatever it is, right. and and women don't. They're almost and that because yeah. God is a boy, that women are therefore lesser than the men, and like the whole exactly. like no. And then we're gonna do a whole, I think, series on on the gendered realities Male of and God female. and all of that, which I'm so excited oh, for. There's so much. So excited in all. about that. So we're just setting a bit of a foundation now that we'll be able to extend later. Mm-hmm. But again, we're not talking about three beings in heaven, two of which are you know one is a, a male, one is or one is sort of a, a, a older dad, one is more of a teenage son. And one is in, in nondescript, undefined female. That's mm-hmm. part of it. We're just talking about the Hebrew people are willing to say that that which is masculine and feminine, feminine that we see in the world, it was brought forth from God, who who is bigger than those categories, but those categories yeah. exist within God somehow and all of that. And the mystery of however we understand that. And to your point then, and this is the last thing I think we can cover for today, what God does into the tohu vavohu and into the roiling chaos and into the purpose purposelessness of it. And mm-hmm. one of those words you you said for said in the Hebrew was to intend. 
Is that right? Yeah, it's say, desire, command, yeah. intend, call out, and speak one's heart. So I, I even love the idea that he, it, it might not even be that there was nothing and then there was something, but it's almost like out of the darkness he called out and desired and intended for there to be fr- from his heart light right. that came out of the darkness. And when we talk about light here, and this is maybe the most important part of this, I remember when my head exploded the first mm-hmm. time somebody pointed this out to me. Yeah. As they said, what was not going on here was God saying, well, it's about time I get busy with the work of creation. What's the first thing I'm going to need to do? Well, I can't see terribly well right now. <laughs> and so in order to create my little Play-Doh right. that is Like a this, sculpture in the workshop. Totally, like, yeah. Yeah, Light. I've got some blue Play-Doh and some red and some yellow, and I don't want to mix it all up. And so mm-hmm. the first thing I need to do is, is is hit the cosmic light chain and and click, turn it on so I can kind of see what I'm doing. And they pointed out that that light doesn't really come until what day is it? Day three or day four with the sun, moon, and day stars? Day four, sun, yeah, moon, yeah, yeah. and stars. So that's where we have physical light coming for the first time. They said that this is light that isn't light in day one. It's, it, it, it is something that is different that God is doing. The light is, in the, in this moment, I, again, this is sort of a mind-blowing thing. When you just start studying the themes of Scripture and you see in the opening to the Gospel of John, some several thousand years mm-hmm. after these events for the Hebrew people, John is reflecting on what the light is of day one of creation. And, uh, and he says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. These are it's some Greek mm-hmm. concepts of logos and, and sort of this governing force that exists in the world. Yeah. It says that all things were made from him. Apart from him, nothing was made that has been made. And then it says, in, in him there was life, and this life was the light of all humankind. And right there, and then it says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. And right there, John tells us exactly what the light of day one is. Again, it's not some big blast of photonic light that it allows us to see in the world, that it's, it's whatever this life is, this life is the light of all mankind. Now, life shows up as one of the key themes of all of the New Testament. It's some 122 times, I think, life shows up in things like everlasting life and Mm -hmm. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, or in me there is life when Jesus talks about that. And that word life just simply means the kind of existence that God enjoys. Yeah. So it's not about biological life in the New Testament. We we see it that way. And unfortunately, in famous verses like John 3, 16, where it says you'll have everlasting life, we think in that passage that it means you're going to have sort of an endless biological existence right. as opposed to the idea that there's an invitation to have God's way of life in and around and through you. And so mm-hmm. the point of all of that, back to the creation story, is that in day one of Genesis, into the roiling chaos and the darkness, when God says, let there be light, he basically is saying, let there be my way of life and mm-hmm. who I am as the, as the Trinitarian God of love let that envelop and surround and pervade and invade everything in this world. Yeah, so and that there overcome is, this chaotic abyss exactly, of Tohu Vavo. Exactly. Let there be my presence everywhere, which is mm-hmm. why the psalmist then says later on, where can you go from God's presence? See, if you go yeah. to the heights of the mountains, he's there. If you go to the depths of the earth, he's there. And when when we were in Nottingham talking with Tim Yearsley, who was in episode five-ish with us. You say we as though I was invited. <laughs> When your mom and I, independent uh-huh. of you, uh, met with Tim Yearsley, 
He said that when they began to talk about God with people on the university campus, they're starting with the perspective that God is near to everyone. And I know I've referenced that in the past, but I think it's so important that whether somebody has decided to give their allegiance to Jesus and thus be a Christian, or whether it's somebody who is searching out spiritual things, whether it's somebody who is going to a church service on a weekend or somebody who has been so burned by the institutional church, they'll never again darken the doors, whether it's somebody who's an atheist or a Hindu or uh, somebody who is is uh, walking in maybe some depression, like an after sun that we talked about, whatever mm-hmm. it is, and God is near to all of us. And, and his light, and I think for most of us, I mean, most of my life, if I'm honest, has felt a whole lot of tohu, tohu vavohu. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of the future is unclear and uncertain. Most of it feels like roiling chaos. And the idea that God has this beautiful invitation right in the beginning with let there be light, meaning I will bring the fullness of who I am to overcome this chaos and be near to my people and near yeah. to this world that I'm going to create and, and accessible in that. It's such a different kind of promise. Again, it, it requires, I think, a magical worldview because we're talking about interacting with a being in the unseen realm around us that has the possibility of bringing something into the chaos of our lives, just like God did at the beginning. So it's such a profound institution uh, or, or invitation, I'd say. So when the church is an institution, is supposed to be the light of the world, and yeah. they're not when they're bringing more chaos into the world then like, we're just, we're missing our call. But as, as the people of God following Jesus, we can bring a different kind of light in the world. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And I, uh, looking forward to our next couple of weeks, um, where we're going to start, I think next week we're going to start covering, uh, the actual like creation story itself and the patterns that you find there, what it means, um, when God says that something is good, the concept of sacred future and all of that. Right. And then once we have that foundation, then the week after that, we're going to try and talk about what it means to be made in the image of God, um, the intrinsic goodness of creation and of mankind, maybe a little bit about names um, sure. and vocation, and then the concept of naked and unafraid and what and what does that actually mean in relationship with God. Yeah, and these concepts, again, as we said at the beginning, are so important for people who are interested in spiritual things, but yeah. have sort of given up on all the weirdness that has been Western institutional church these last 50 or 60 years. Uh, I know Rabbi Allen will join us a bit for some of these. Mm-hmm. Rabbi uh, Noah will join us a bit. We're hoping to have Rebecca rejoin us. These are people yeah, who are yeah. deep into the Hebrew, and we'll do some some spinoff episodes with them. So it should be a pretty fun road ahead. I hope it's helpful. Just even it's I'm helpful excited. to just talk yeah. through it again in in some ways to help understand this faith journey from maybe a different uh, angle that actually includes the magic in the world. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, this has been The Deeper Magic. I'm Anna. This is my father, Peter. Say bye, Peter. Bye, Peter. (laughs) We'll talk to you guys Uh, soon. Thank you so much. Bye. Magic is produced by Audio on the Rocks, and our music for this episode is Auroras of Saturn by Music L Files. You can head on over to filmmusic.io and find that there, all licensed under Creative Commons 4.0, viewable on the site as well. 